Well, you know, when God created this world and everything in it and then rested on the seventh day, he wasn't sitting back looking at all that he had made, thinking to himself, I wonder how all this is going to turn out, right? And do you know why that thought never once crossed his mind? Because long before he ever spoke this planet into existence, every moment of time that it ever would exist had already been authored by him. Now think about that. Every sunrise and every sunset, every afternoon storm, every gust of wind that would ever blow, every drop of rain that would ever fall were breathed out by God when he created this earth. Now, how do I know that? Because that's what he said. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. You know that applies to your life as well? Every decision you will ever make, every good day and every bad day, every struggle you will ever face, every tear you will ever shed, he knew before you were. King David wrote, you've kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Psalm 56, 8. You understand? Every one of your days he knew intimately before you ever lived even one of them. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet, there was none of them. <laughs> Psalm 139, 13 through 16. Listen, if that doesn't make you shudder in awe and wonder, then you do not know who God really is. Maybe, maybe that's the reason we don't treat the words of God himself as the most precious gift we've ever been given, short of our very salvation. Maybe that's why we rely on our own wits and our own feelings far more than we should when making decisions in life. Maybe that's why we try to fill our lives with so many things in this world that could never fulfill us because we're not truly awestruck by the one who knitted us together in our mother's womb. Honestly, how is it when we consider the creator of the universe, the God who the prophet Amos described as he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts is his name, Amos 4.13. 
How is it when we consider this God who holds every breath that we will ever breathe in the palm of his hand? Job 12.10. How is it that somehow we are not awestruck by him? How is it that we're not utterly overwhelmed with a reverence and a holy fear in his presence to the point that everything else in our lives becomes secondary to his will for our lives? Honestly, how, how is it that we, we live so focused on created things instead of living every single day with a profound and inescapable sense of wonder in the presence of the creator himself, who, by the way, has invited us into his story? It begs the question, how would our lives be different if we truly saw him for who he is. Because look, God does have a plan for this world. And you have a part to play in that, and yet the degree to which you choose to participate in that plan or not has no bearing whatsoever on whether or not his plan will ultimately be accomplished. You understand, our decisions do not control God's actions. God is sovereign, and nothing we can ever say or do will ever lessen His sovereignty in any way, shape, or form. Say, so God's plan for this world is going to be accomplished whether we personally get on board with it or not. Your life, however, that's a very different story. You see, because although the ultimate outcome of God's plan for this world cannot be undermined by our failure to acknowledge his rightful place in our lives, our failure to acknowledge him in all of our ways, our daily lives, on the other hand, well, those are profoundly affected by our failure to acknowledge him in all our ways. Proverbs 3, 6 says, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will what? He will make straight your paths. You see, there's a cause and effect on our lives personally. There's a cause and effect when we recognize who God actually is and respond accordingly in all our ways. Now, what exactly does it mean then to respond accordingly to God? Well, it means we revere Him with a sense of awestruck wonder in everything that we say and do to the point that we are so concerned with God's will for our lives above all else that it consumes our thoughts and our speech and our decisions and our relationships and above all our commitment to him and to his people. Look, anything less than that, all we're doing is selling ourselves short of all that God is offering us which we'll see in our story today as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of Judges as Samson, the final judge in the book, is born and begins his life in the service of God's people. And yet what we're going to find in this story is God very effectively accomplishing his will for his people through a man whose life was an epic tragedy. Okay, you're getting the picture God is going to accomplish his will for this world through you, one way or the other. How you experience that is largely up to you. 
Because when you choose your own ways over his ways, your life is at odds with God's will. And when your life is at odds with God's will, which of those two do you think is going to suffer? Not God's will. You see, if you want your life to change, if you need your life to change today, then ask yourself and be honest with the answer. Do I revere God so much in my life that his will is my very first priority? And if the answer is no, then I can tell you with confidence that is the change you're looking for, whether you realize it or not. It's a lesson, actually, that Samson needed to learn as well. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last week at the end of chapter 13, and then we'll move through chapter 14 and see what we can learn from this tragic figure in God's story for his people. We'll begin by reading chapter 13, verses 21 through 25. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. The young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtol. So if you were here uh, last week, you'll remember that the angel of the Lord, uh, which, by the way, was a theophany, a, it's a visible manifestation of the Messiah himself in human form. He appears to this barren woman and her husband, a man named Manoah, and informs them that they will have a son who is to be set apart by God uh, in terms of the Nazarite vow, which you can find in Numbers 6, in order uh, for him to begin delivering God's people from the Philistines who had been oppressing the Israelites for the past 40 years at this point. And so uh, this is the end of that part of the narrative, the story, as Samson is born and becomes a young man in the service of God. And the, the part I want to point out here is verses 24 and 25 where it says, The young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. The point being, this was obviously a young man from a God-fearing home, raised by God-fearing parents, a man who was blessed by God, and who had experienced the presence of God in his life firsthand. So it's not like he can claim ignorance when it comes to God's will for his life. No, this was someone who had tasted what God had to offer. Someone who knew exactly what he was created to do and who understood what was required of him to do it. Now let's keep that in mind as we continue reading chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. 
So Samson goes down to Timnah, it's modern day uh, Tel Batash in uh, the Shephelah, the foothills of the Judean mountains, about 15 miles east uh, of modern day uh, Ashdod in Israel. Uh, actually, by the way, modern archaeology has uncovered a thriving and heavily fortified Philistine city there from the early Iron Age, which is the time, this time of the judges. And there at Timnah, Samson sees a young woman who he describes as right in his eyes. It was a Hebrew uh, idiom, a Hebrew saying that used to uh, describe something that was pleasing or satisfactory or acceptable. And since Samson's only contact with the woman at this point was visual, he hasn't even met her yet, his entire reason for wanting to marry her was purely physical attraction, which in and of itself, of course, is not a good reason to marry someone, and yet there were far more serious implications, far more uh, important reasons for Samson to avoid this marriage, namely that it was forbidden in the Mosaic Law, which is spelled out in Exodus 34, uh, 14 through 16, Deuteronomy 7, 3. It's actually referenced in Genesis chapters 24 and 26. But, but that wasn't about to stop Samson. Right? Because at this point in his life, he was more interested in a girl than he was in God's word. He'd replaced the awestruck wonder of the creator with a lust for his creation. And in the process, Samson disregarded God's word, which is exactly what happens when you allow yourself to become more impressed with what God has created than you are with God himself. You begin to follow the created instead of following the creator. Look, it wasn't like Samson uh, didn't believe that God's word was valid anymore at this point. No, we'll see, we'll see him later in his life trusting in God. It's not that he stopped believing that God's word was true. No, it was simply in that moment, Samson saw something that he was more impressed with than he was impressed with the word of God. And so he blatantly disregarded God's word for something else that he wanted more. I'm telling you, if this doesn't describe a large percentage of the Christian population in the American church today, then I do not know what does. The fact is, the American church is rife with believers, people who will absolutely profess the inerrancy and infallibility of God's word, who disregard that very same word every day of their lives. Okay, I'm not talking about uh, people who struggle with sin. That's all of us. No, I'm talking about people who read the Word of God, people who understand what it says and affirm that what it says is true and then blatantly disregard what it says because they're more impressed with this world and what it has to offer them than they are with God, the one who created this world, and what He has to offer them. And then they wonder why they feel so unfulfilled. Well, it's because we've missed the whole point of God's word to begin with. You see, when we reduce it down to nothing more than some kind of uh, instruction manual for life with a list of rules to live by, we've completely missed the point of his word. And so we allow ourselves to become more impressed with other things. And in the process, we disregard these very words of God for our lives. In his letter to the, Christian, uh, the Corinthian church, the apostle Paul writes, among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or 
the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 9. Do you understand the ultimate point of God's word isn't to know information. It is to know Jesus Christ. See, if this book doesn't lead you to Christ, then you're wasting your time reading it. If it doesn't change your life, if it doesn't change the way you think, if it doesn't change the way you make decisions, if it, if it doesn't change the way you see the world, then what is the point of even picking it up? There will always be something more interesting in the world than God's Word until you begin to see Jesus in every single thing that it says. That is the point of picking up this ancient book and reading it because it will lead you to Christ if you will allow it to. And there's nothing more compelling. There's nothing more exciting. There's nothing more meaningful. There is nothing more fulfilling in this life than discovering the will of God for your life in Christ Jesus as you explore the mysteries of his word. Or... You can continue to chase after created things in this world in an endless cycle of dissatisfaction and disillusionment. The choice is yours. You see, God will accomplish, listen, God will accomplish his purposes through you or someone else one way or the other. That's evident in verse 4 here where even though Samson was bent on violating God's law, the Lord would still accomplish his purpose through Samson. God obviously could have accomplished his judgment on the Philistines without Samson violating God's word. So either way, God's will would be accomplished. You see, it wasn't God's will that would suffer given Samson's unfaithfulness. It was Samson who would suffer. You see, you're simply cheating yourself out of the life that God created you for when you allow yourself to be more impressed with this world than you are awestruck with who he is and what he wants to do in your life. Let's keep reading. Verses 5 through 7. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring, then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. So Samson and his parents are headed down to Timnah to negotiate the marriage transaction, okay? In uh, ancient Near Eastern cultures, marriages were handled like business transactions between the parents of those who were to be married. And at some point on the way there, Samson and his parents separate temporarily. It might have been to allow his father uh, a time to go ahead of him and negotiate the marriage uh, without Samson there. We don't know, but while Samson is alone in the vineyards just outside of Timnah, 
a young lion comes along and decides that Samson would make a good meal. And so the spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson as the lion comes in. And Samson tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. If you read that in the Hebrew, the word tor in the ancient Hebrew is the verb shasa. It means to split. And it's the same verb used in Leviticus 1 where instructions are given for tearing or splitting the sacrifice right down the middle for burnt offerings. And so Samson would have most likely grabbed the lion's hind legs here and pulled them apart, splitting the lion right down the middle. <laughs> right? I can barely take the clear plastic wrapper off of my baked potato when I take it out of the microwave. I mean, this was an incredible feat of strength and courage. And yet as fascinating as that part of the story is, the part that really matters is the next sentence. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he'd done. Okay? Samson has established a pattern in his life now of ignoring his parents' guidance and refusing to submit to their authority. Back in verse 3, after telling his mother and father that he's seen this pretty young Philistine girl that he wants for a wife, his parents respond with, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? By the way, son, these are the people who've been oppressing us for the last 40 years, right? For the Israelites, marriages to unbelieving foreigners were also strictly forbidden. And in Israelite society, the father was the head of the family. And in that role, he would exercise complete authority, control actually over the other members of the family, including the right to choose wives for his sons, which we find in Genesis chapters 21 and uh, 24 and 38. So Hebrew parents would arrange the marriages of their children, and yet Samson completely disregards his parents by finding a wife for himself and a Philistine girl on top of that, who he says is right in my eyes. I don't care how she is in your eyes, dad. She's right in my eyes. The Nazarite vow that Samson took would not allow him to marry this girl. And yet he kills the lion, also arguably violating his Nazarite vow, which we'll come back to. He doesn't bother to tell his parents. Why? Because touching a dead body would require a lengthy period of cleansing and renewal. Again, the Nazarite vow that Samson was under would have required him to go straight to the tabernacle after touching this dead body and then to go through a ritual cleansing for eight days, shaving his head, offering a sin offering and a burnt offering, rededicating himself for the Nazarite vow, and then offering a year-old male lamb as a guilt offering. It's all spelled out in Numbers 6, uh, 9, and 12. But of course, Samson, Samson has a girl on his mind who he would much rather pursue than having to put his marriage on hold in order to honor his vow. And so he refuses to tell his parents what he's done, once again disregarding their authority in his life. And as bad as that is, it's a much bigger issue than simply keeping Samson's parents out of the loop because Samson had replaced the honor and wonder and respect that we are to have for God and those who he places in our lives to guide us through this life. He'd replaced all of that with an arrogance and pride that would ultimately become his undoing. You see, he didn't just withhold information from his parents. Samson disregarded God's protection 
All right? Look, God puts all sorts of people and circumstances, actually, in our lives to guide us and grow us and mature us and strengthen us and encourage us, ultimately, to protect us. Well, to protect us from what? It's probably not what you think. Okay, when we disregard the protection that God provides for us, when people live rebellious lives, they know they're putting themselves at risk, right? But typically, they have no idea what they're actually at risk of facing. Some people think the risk they face when they rebel against uh, society or against authority in this world is the possibility of maybe going to jail. No, that is actually just another form of God's protection for people who haven't yet learned to submit their lives to His authority. Right? Some people think risk is getting fired from their job when they choose to do something directly in opposition to their boss or their employer. Well, no, getting fired is actually just another form of God's protection in your life to wake you up from the path you're currently going on. Some people excitedly think they're living on the edge when they disregard God's protection in their life when actually they have no idea what living on the edge even means. They think the consequences that they may face in this life for breaking rules and disobeying laws and disregarding authority is what God is trying to protect them from when actually they have no clue what God is trying to protect them from. Listen, when Jesus offered himself on the cross that we might be saved, what was he actually saving us from? He wasn't saving us from ourselves. He wasn't saving us from the devil. He wasn't saving us from hell. He wasn't even saving us from our sins in and of themselves. No, when Jesus gave his life on the cross, he was saving us from the wrath of God. Jesus said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him, John 3, 36. In Matthew 10, 28, he said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The apostle Paul said, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from what? The wrath of God. Romans 5, 9, do you understand when your life is not submitted to Christ and God puts people and circumstances in your life to protect you, he is protecting you from himself. Why? Because every single one of us deserves his wrath. So he puts all sorts of people in all kinds of circumstances in our lives to point us to Jesus Christ so that we might be saved from his wrath. And by the way, when it comes to living your life on the edge, if you really want to push the envelope, if risk excites you, 
If taking a giant leap into a great unknown stirs you on the inside, then fully give your life to Jesus Christ and follow him with a sense of total abandon. And I guarantee you, you will experience a life that is infinitely more compelling and infinitely more exciting and infinitely more meaningful and more fulfilling than anything else you could ever experience from this world. Because following Jesus Christ will lead you into a life that is full of awe and wonder. It's a life that will require you to give all that you have, to be sure. Every last drop of your heart and mind and soul you will have to give to his cause. And listen, the cost of that kind of life couldn't be higher. In fact, Jesus promised us that following him would be met with consequences from this world. At times, tribulation, hardship, sometimes suffering. He never said it would be easy or safe or risk-free. In fact, it's just the opposite. And yet at the end of it all, when you choose to follow Jesus Christ, instead of eternal wrath, we're promised an eternal reward. The the choice is yours. God is going to accomplish his will either way. Which means you get to choose. You can be awestruck by what he is doing and play your part in it. Or you can disregard what he's doing and miss out on the life that could be yours. Let's keep reading. Verses 8 through 14. After some days he returned to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. He came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them what he had, uh, that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. I wonder why. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet, and in three days they could not solve the riddle. So all of the wedding preparations and agreements are made, and Samson is on his way back to, uh, to the, the feast, to prepare a feast. That was the custom at the time for the groom to do, although that is about as far as Samson's adherence to custom goes, because along the way he finds that the lion he had killed before uh, now has a beehive in it, and so he scrapes the honey out of it, of course, in direct violation again of his Nazarite vow, which stipulated he could not touch a dead body. And then he eats some of the honey and gives some to his parents, of course, not telling them where it came from because he knows better. Then he prepares a feast at the bride's house, which was not Jewish custom. And by the way, uh, the word used in the text for feast is the Hebrew word mista. It is a, a specifically used in Scripture to describe a feast where alcohol was being consumed. 
Right? Yet another direct violation of the Nazarite vow which stipulated abstinence from wine or anything else associated with the vine. Anything made from grapes and also any other strong alcoholic drink. And then the party starts with Samson and 30 Philistine men invited by the bride's family which is indicated later in verses 17 and 18. These men who were there to party with Samson for seven days and then at the end of their drunken party, the marriage would be consummated. And if all of that wasn't enough for Samson, he decides to wager with the Philistine men for 30 changes of clothes, one from each of them if they cannot solve his riddle. And of course, they accept the challenge. You would expect no less from 31 men sitting around drinking for seven days. And now keep in mind, in, uh, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, people uh, typically would own very few articles of clothing because they were extremely expensive and hard to come by. So a change of clothes was a very costly wager, which is why the men react in such an extreme way when they can't solve the riddle, which we'll see in a moment. But the question for Samson here is, how much is enough? Right? He's more than willing to disregard God's word as he lusts after this Philistine girl. He's more than willing to disregard God's protection in his life as pride keeps him from submitting to his parents. And he's more than willing to break his Nazarite vow repeatedly as his greed drives him to compromise in just about every way possible in the pursuit of personal pleasure and worldly wealth. And in the process, Samson disregarded God's best. Okay? Look, as Christians, what are our lives actually saying when we're willing to disregard our commitments to Christ in pursuit of something else that our hearts long for even more? Right? What we're saying is, God, I don't actually believe that you have something better for me than what I can provide for myself. So we strive for what is good, and in the process, we forego what is best. We think we're doing right by ourselves by feeding our own desires, even if at the expense of the commitments that we've been called to as followers of Jesus Christ. And all the while, we're missing out on God's greatest blessings. Author and speaker Priscilla Shirer wrote, When God is honored, when his authority is kept in proper perspective, all the blessing and favor he intends to give his children become a part of their experience. But when we seek to be our own sovereign ruler, we will find that we're working harder for fewer, less satisfying results. You see, there's only one of two things that can rule your life. God or you. It cannot be both. You have to choose one or the other. Are you going to live for Christ or are you going to live for yourself? You see, Samson was more in awe of himself than he was with God. And honestly, I think there are a lot of people, even professing believers today, who actually feel the same way. 
Of course, we'd never admit that, but that's what our lives are saying when we disregard our commitments to Christ because we're too busy pursuing other things. And listen, I, I, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on anyone. The truth is I have to reconcile these messages in my own life before I bring them to you. But listen, there's a reality here that we cannot afford to ignore. If your life is more consumed by the pursuit of your own desires than it is by the pursuit of Christ and His desires, if your commitments to Christ and His people are your last priority rather than your first, if your primary concern in life is getting what you want for you rather than what God wants for you, then whether you realize it or not, you are anointing yourself sovereign ruler and in the process, you're disregarding God's best for your life. See, Samson consistently chose himself over God and the results speak for themselves. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 15 to the end of the chapter. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. He said to her, behold, I have not told my father nor my mother. And shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey, what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. He went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. What a friend. <laughs> now that devolved quickly, didn't it? First, these men are drinking and enjoying the festivities, but once they realize the answer to the riddle was beyond them, the whole event takes a dark and menacing turn as they threaten to burn Samson's wife and her family to death if she does not find out the answer for them. And so fearing for her, of course, and her family's lives, she expends all of the energy and emotion for the duration of the wedding feast that she can to try and convince Samson to give her the answer to the riddle. And of course, anticipating the consummation of the marriage on the final day, Samson is anxious to stop her uncontrollable weeping. And so he gives her the explanation to the riddle, which she promptly then gives to the 30 Philistine men who then wait right up to the last minute to gloat over Samson with the answer. And in his burning hot rage, he replies, if you had not plowed with my heifer, that was actually a Hebrew idiom as well, as saying that men, if you had not intimidated my wife, you would not have found out my riddle. But they did find out the riddle. What they didn't realize they were also about to find out was the fact that they picked the wrong guy to mess with. 
The Lord uses Samson's anger to bring judgment on the Philistines, right? Samson leaves the party. He travels about 20 miles to the town of Ashkelon where he kills 30 Philistine men and then brings their garments back to the men at the party with one very notable detail. Okay, the Hebrew words used in the story to describe the garments that Samson is requesting back in verses 12 and 13 where he presents the riddle those are not the same Hebrew words that are used in verse 19 to describe the garments that Samson actually took from the Philistine men in Ashkelon and brought back. Okay, in verses 12 and 13, these are festal garments. Uh, they're, they're the equivalent of our Sunday best, a fine change of clothing that would only be worn on special occasions like a wedding. However, the words used in verse 19 to describe the garments that Samson brought back from Ashkelon are used elsewhere throughout Scripture to describe battle gear. You see, it appears that Samson didn't just go and kill 30 Philistine men. He sought out and killed 30 hardened Philistine soldiers and took their armor and battle gear and carried it back 20 miles and presented it to the men at the party. You get the message, right? Be careful what you wish for, boys. You're messing with a guy who just single-handedly took out 30 of your best soldiers. So enjoy the armor. I hope it fits. You're going to need it. And then Samson returns home still fuming about what his wife did to him without yet knowing that his father-in-law has given his wife to his best man. So the men of the wedding party betray him. His wife betrays him. His father-in-law betrays him. And his best man betrays him. Samson's life is a mess and the fallout from this event isn't even over yet as we'll see next week and yet through it all God's purposes are served you're getting it God God's will hasn't suffered one bit through this entire debacle but Samson well Samson's life is miserable why because he lost his sense of awe and wonder at the presence of God in his life and chose instead to try and rule over himself. And look where it's brought him. Okay, listen. God's plan for this world is going to be accomplished whether we personally get on board with it or not. Your life, however, is a very different story. You can do it God's way or just like Samson, you can do it your own way. The choice is yours. But to be sure, you have to choose. Who is going to rule your life? God or you? And I'll just tell you, if you are not truly awestruck by the wonder of who God is and what he's capable of, then you will choose yourself every single time. Modern science tells us that there are roughly 
150 billion stars born each year. That's about 410 million new stars every day. 4,800 every second. Psalm 147.4 says, He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. <laughs> 4,800 every single second. Science says the average person takes about 23,040 breaths per day. There are seven and a half billion people on this planet. That's 172 trillion, 800 billion breaths breathed every day. Job 12.10 says, In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Science says the average person has about 150,000 hairs on their head. With seven and a half billion people on the planet, that's one quadrillion. 125 trillion hairs on the heads of human beings on the earth today. In Luke 12, 7, Jesus said, even the hairs of your head are all numbered by God. Now you tell me, who do you think is better equipped to rule your life? God or you? Let's pray.